You know, it's not that you have to somehow spend 10 hours a week doing strategic thinking. You do not. It is simply about learning to change the frame through which you look at the world. And it takes a little bit of effort in the beginning, but once you put it into place, it is actually not that hard to accomplish. This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Dory Clark. Dory has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make positive change in their lives. She's a former presidential campaign spokesperson, a best-selling author and writer for publications like Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Business Insider. She's a strategy consultant and keynote speaker who has worked with Google, Microsoft, and Fidelity, just to name a few. Hi, Dory. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. And I've read several of your books and seen so many of your TED Talks and so many of your, uh, you know, episodes of your your wonderful podcast, you know, LinkedIn Live episodes. So I'm so excited and primed to talk to you today. And while I was doing research, I, I noticed something. We have a place in common. You left high school, I think, at 14 to attend the program for the Exceptionally Gifted at uh, Mary Baldwin College. Yes. And that's in Stanton. We're in Harrisonburg, just up the road. Oh, amazing. Yes. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Very, very close. That's right. Oh, I bet that was an incredible experience for you at 14. It, it was. I was I was really glad that I had the opportunity to, to go to Mary Baldwin and to... Uh, have that experience. You know, I was not, I was not very excited about the prospect of uh, high school. And so the idea of being able to skip it sounded great. So, uh, so I did that. And I, I, in fact, I serve on the, on the board of Mary Baldwin now. Do you really? So. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's near and dear to us. We've actually done some work with them years and years ago on some brand ID and corporate ID stuff. So oh, how cool. I think that's such a cool connection. I've got so much to you talk to to talk to you about and your books and so much great thinking um, that you share with the world. But lately you've been doing, you know, it's sort of a podcast style LinkedIn live, LinkedIn live episodes and it's called Better and it's sponsored by Newsweek and I've watched a few. How did this show come about? The show really came about um, through I guess I guess you could say sort of the uh, the yeoman's work of networking that I did over the years. I moved to New York um, maybe eight years ago from Boston, and I realized pretty quickly that I was going to need to be very focused in terms of building my network, uh, making connections, because you move someplace and. One, you know, once you finish unpacking, you sort of realize like, oh, no one is inviting me to anything. Uh, you know, they might know you, but they don't really think about you or they don't think about inviting you places. And so you have to do the work. You have to make the effort. And so I, uh, I started organizing regular dinner gatherings for people that I knew a little bit that I wanted to turn into better connections. Uh, I would sometimes co-host them with friends and, you know, get to meet their contacts. And I did this for years. I did one or two a month for, you know, seven years or something, you know, basically up until the pandemic. And so as part of that, I ended up at one point meeting a woman who is uh, a top person at Newsweek. And these things take a while to germinate. Um, I uh, Nothing came of it right away. But about a year later, I ran into her at another party 
and we started to talk and we discovered that they were interested in doing more with their LinkedIn. And so, uh, eventually, uh, you know, probably eight months after that, it turned into the launch of my show, which I've now been doing for over two years. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I'm so glad I discovered it and I discovered it. I knew your books and have read those. And then when you were going to be on the podcast, I started looking into your background more and more and discovered your show because I hadn't seen it. And now I'm working my way back through all the episodes. And I highly recommend um, this show to anyone that's listening that's on LinkedIn. And if you're not on LinkedIn, go get on LinkedIn. And just to follow Dory and to see this wonderful show. I noticed with the show, you have, you talk to guests and you talk about their expertise and what's going on with them and their thinking. But the themes of the guests you have really echo a lot of the thinking that's throughout your books. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I mean, I do, I do have general preoccupations. Uh, the reason the show is called Better is that it is focused broadly on ways that individual people can optimize their lives, uh, primarily, although not exclusively, in the professional sphere. And so it's looking for people who have actionable advice about ways that we can improve as leaders, uh, you know, take better charge of our career, um, enable ourselves to, uh, to, to be more successful, however one defines success. What a great idea for a program, and they partnered with the perfect person. For it. Well, thank you. Now, how did you come to start your podcast, Steve? You know, I started my podcast right at the beginning of the pandemic, and I'm an introvert like you. And I really missed like really good, deep one on one conversations because that's my sweet spot. You know, like a few people in a room or one on one is always where I've been the happiest in meeting people and getting to know them. So I had to figure out a way to do it. And then I I sort of live in storytelling. I've been a storyteller since I was a kid. And, you know, I, I help brands tell their story. And when you think about brand stories, you know, what you just said about better being part, you know, their business lives and you're talking about that, but it also veers into the personal. That's the same thing with brand. People forget how human it is. So, you know, someone's brand story is built of a ton of little pieces of information. And they're emotional, they're factual, they're, they're you know, capabilities, they're all this stuff, but a lot of it's just the human things that we all connect with. So I just decided I wanted to talk to people about that, and here I am. I love it. I love it. That's great. And I've, I've been having a blast because the guests I've gotten, every single one of them I feel like I learn, I do the research, I really dig into the pe person's work, and I, it's like every single person I get this, it's like taking a class of, of them. So it's been great for me. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I love it. So let me talk to you about your books because there's no way I can talk about all of them. But you have some absolutely amazing books, and you're an incredible writer. Um, you have, you know, if people haven't read your books, "Reinventing You: Defining Your Brand and Imagining Your Future" is one of my favorites. I think it's one of the best books on personal brand. You have "Standout: Entrepreneurial You," and then your latest, "The Long Game: How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World," I think is a book that everyone needs to read right now. It is so perfectly timed for this day and age. So I wanted to talk about that one a little bit um, <clears throat> to start out. The, you know, it's, a, it's really full of amazing advice on, on how we can live a more balanced life. And why do you think we all get just so stuck in short-term thinking? Well, part, partly I would say it's the nature of the human condition where, you know, people do like things now. That is, uh, that is a true thing. But I also think that there are societal circumstances that kind of force us into it. Um, 
the pandemic being ch chief among them for the past couple of years, you you might have wanted to make long-term plans. Uh, you you might have been you know fully intending to be the world's best long-term thinker, and yet everything you tried was foiled because it's like, oh nope, no, actually you can't do that. Nope, that flight is canceled. No, those borders are sealed. Uh, no, that office is closed. <laughs> and okay, so uh, so you had to do short-term thinking, and it's not that short-term thinking was so bad per se. In a crisis, short-term thinking is just what you need, you know? Great, move, pivot, adapt. Uh, but the problem, like a lot of things, is where you get stuck in it, where it becomes the only thing in your repertoire and you are unable, when the time beckons, to switch back into long-term mode. You have to be able to, to do both in order to be successful at crafting a future. I read something that you wrote about, you know, we all say we love strategy and strategic thinking, but we also never have time for it. Yes. Which is which is really crazy when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the mental equivalent of like, pe you know, people avoiding the gym. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, that would be such a good idea. And then... Uh, I wish I was healthier, but I don't feel like going. Yeah, totally. But the ironic thing is that, I mean, working out actually is a legitimate effort. Like, I can see why people want to shirk that. Strategic thinking actually... I think that we build it up in our heads as, oh, it would be so hard. It would require so much time. It would require so much effort, but it actually doesn't. You know, it's not that you have to somehow spend 10 hours a week doing strategic thinking. You do not. It is simply about learning to change the frame through which you look at the world. And it takes a little bit of effort in the beginning, but once you put it into place, it is actually not that hard to accomplish. Yeah, it's more of a muscle that so many of us don't use that we have to relearn how to use it. And I think that's part of what's great about your book is that you help people learn that it's not impossible and that we can all do it. And I think we get stuck. It's really easy for people to get stuck in, you talk a lot about busyness, you know, just get stuck in business and how people look at being busy. And there was something that you wrote about busy, busyness being almost a badge of honor that I just recognized it immediately. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's very common. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's some interesting research that I cite in the long game uh, out of Columbia University uh, done by Sylvia Baletza and her colleagues. And what they discovered is that in many places, but you know, notably among them the United States, busyness really has become a kind of status symbol. And that's part of why so many people, when you ask them, how are you doing, the answer isn't good. The answer isn't bad. The answer is, I'm so busy. And the reason is that it is essentially a societally accepted coded message where people are saying, I am so popular. I am so in demand. It's crazy. And, uh, and so they might claim that they want to be less busy but they often do not take the steps necessary to get there because it becomes a threat to their identity. That was such an eye-opener when I read it, and it, you know, it's right in front of me. But there's so many people and colleagues that I've worked with that have said, oh my God, I'm so busy. I wish I could learn to manage my time better or stop having back-to-back -back meetings all day. And then I would try to help them, and they would just not want any help. That's and right. Oh, it, oh, it's impossible, Steve. It's impossible. Don't even know. Can't, oh, no, can't, can't be done. Do I honestly, like, I, I've had times in my life where that's how I lived. And I very intentionally chose a different path. Like, I, 
I think when you have a better control of your time and you don't just let busyness be that badge of honor, then you're you're sort of more present in all the other things you're doing. Yeah. Was that was that part of the reason for you uh, moving to uh, Harrisonburg? Yes, absolutely it was. Yeah. And I was on the Beltway in, in Washington, D.C. for my 55-minute drive that should have been five minutes each way to my own company. And, you know, and then just the schedules and the way that people lived, like no time to have a conversation, you know, rushing from some one thing to another. And I thought, you know, I've lived in the Shenandoah Valley. I can move this entire company there. And I did. And it was the best thing we ever did. There's a lot of other reasons that people use busyness, you know, and get stuck in it. And one of the, one of the ones that you talked about really hit home with me. And it's sort of as a, a way to numb yourself or cope with grief. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to the the status motivation around busyness, I mean, there it's, it's often the case, but it's not always the case uh, that people use it that way. There are other reasons why people are um, chronically busy. And I, and, I, and I don't, I don't mean like, oh gosh, you're so busy. It's, you know, the holidays and you have to do a bunch of shopping. I'm not talking about a sort of situational thing. I'm talking about the kind of people, and we all know them, where it's chronic, it's perennial. They're never not busy. And one of the reasons why people choose busyness, uh, because we are, you know, if, if it is chronic, it, it, it is because we are making choices, is that sometimes there are things that busyness seems to be a preferable option to. When you are uh, going through something really difficult, maybe you are having relationship problems or a divorce, or maybe there's been a, you know, a death or a loss or, you know, something that is so challenging, just you emotionally would not, would prefer not to face it. This is not a conscious choice that people are making, but a frequent subconscious choice is that they are throwing themselves into work because it is a societally acceptable alternative to actually facing and dealing with those emotions and feeling those things. And, you know, I don't want to knock it because in some ways it is a beneficial choice. You know, if the choice is that or getting drunk every night, yeah, work harder. That seems like a better idea. <laughs> but a reasonable short-term coping mechanism can sometimes metastasize into a very harmful long-term behavioral pattern if you don't analyze it or examine it. And, you know, I've, I've been there, I've done that myself, um, where I have used work as a kind of anesthetic and um, it serves its purpose, but you have to be aware of, of what you're doing. I've done it too, you know? It's like avoidance ain't just a river in Egypt, you know? It's <laughs> like, it's just a... Uh, it's a thing that we do to try to not have to deal with pain or not have to face certain feelings, you know? So I think that's a great thing for people to check themselves on because when you are constantly overscheduling yourselves, it, it is good just to take a beat, try to realize maybe you're trying to avoid something that if you meet it head on, you might do a little bit better. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And that's what I love about your books is that, you know, you're not just talking about productivity. You're not just talking about different ways that we can improve, you know, you get very human in your books and, and get to the source of why we might do things and how we can look at them differently. 
So what got you on this path of writing this, these type of books that you write? I guess the original genesis is I was a, a philosophy major in college and uh, I have a graduate degree in theology. So I've always been interested in questions about how, how people make meaning for themselves, make meaning in their lives. And I think it is uh, true that for many people in contemporary Western society, the workplace is the locus of that. So I am very interested in what that looks like. And I also, you know, I, I've spent the past, I guess, seven, close to 17 years now uh, of having my own business focused around, you know, marketing, communications, uh, et cetera. And so that caused me to become interested in the interpersonal side. I mean, to your, to your point, the brand story, right? What are, what are the narratives we're telling about ourselves? What are the narratives we're telling about our, our companies and our business and why we're doing what we're doing? And how does that relate to uh, the life we want to create for ourselves? So I do, I do think it's a, a fundamentally philosophical pursuit. How interesting. I mean, your background is such a perfect, you know, road to the types of books you write because there is this real philosophical feeling that when you read one of your books, and I'm not surprised that you have a background in theology. Uh, everything you write is very caring, has this very big perspective that you help reframe for everyone that reads. Ah, well, well, thank you. What, now, what was what was your background, Steve, that got you into into you know sort of marketing and branding? Theater. So ah. I was yeah. So I was a theater director and uh, and also toured an improv group up and down the East Coast and performed Amazing. improv. Even though I'm a I'm a dedicated introvert, I love performing improv. That's weird, I know, but it works. And uh, also I studied marketing. So I, I was one of those bizarre people, paid for my own education, had a triple major. I had marketing, art, and theater. So I was also wow. a photography major. Where, where were you doing theater? Um, here at JMU and then mm -hmm. uh, up in D.C. after that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was directing theater and figured out I can't make a living doing this. <laughs> so, you know, I've always been in love with storytelling and I used to – direct plays in my front yard when I was 10 years old and go around the neighborhood and sell tickets. And basically all, all they were were monster movies I saw rewritten into a 10-year-old version of a play. But, you know, people came and saw them and paid a nickel. And uh, so that kind of started my love of it. And then started working with brands, you know, to start telling their story using a lot of the the story structure that we see in plays and movies and all those stories we tell. You know, people forget how human a thing this is. You know, it amazed me as a business person how people don't use those tools in business. They do more now, but for years they did not. You know, everyone thinks people's business people speak business. Well, they don't. They speak human just like all of us. They, lead, they make decisions with emotion. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Reinventing You. Because one of the things I love about that book is that I really do think it's one of the best books on personal brand. And, you know, it's not everyone would think, oh, you know, a lot of per books on personal brand almost sell it a little too hard. And I love how you come at it by helping people realize, you know, what, what do people care about about other people? And there's a, there's a saying in there that is either Hungarian or not. But it's uh, if three people tell you you're a horse, buy a saddle. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, yeah, part of the part of the fun of it, actually, there was a woman that I quoted in the book who's a, an author and an angel investor named Judy Robinette, 
And uh, we were, you know, I was getting her take on personal branding. And she was like, well, it's like that Hungarian proverb. Uh, if three people tell you you're a horse by a saddle, which I thought was so apt and so funny. Uh, but anyway, I have subsequently talked to a million Hungarians and they're like, this not Hungarian. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? Uh, it's, it's absolutely still a good saying. So somebody invented it. We don't know who. But, uh, but what I like about it is, you know, it's, it is fairly useful in the sense that too many people, I think, you know, as with all things in life, people often go to two extremes. One extreme is that one person tells you you're a horse and then you freak out because you're like, oh my God, oh my God, am I really a horse? Or oh my God, do they all think I'm a horse? And you're, and you know, it's like, well, maybe that person just took peyote or something like, you know, one person is really not uh, you know, a, a, a definitive rendering of who you are as a human. Like we need to put that away. And then on the other end, you have the people that, that just go too far on the opposite way. Like, you know, I don't care. I don't care what other people think I'm me and they should get me. It's like, all right, well, I would like to live in that universe, but, uh, we don't. So you need to somehow understand like, Data, data from multiple people is actually fairly useful because as long as it really is from multiple sources and you're getting the same message, it is probably fairly reliable and it probably can teach you something that you might not be able to see about yourself. And uh, in the spirit of uh, philosophy and Socratic self-inquiry, uh, I think that that understanding a little bit more about how you're coming across is not a bad thing. I don't think so at all. I think it's much more authentic. You know, a lot of times people, you know, want to be something and then they insist that's what they are. But it's like a horse insisting they're a dog. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. if you're a horse, embrace being a horse because you're going to be one. Um, you have a, you had a story you told in the book about um, the boardroom poet that I think is like a wonderful example of authentic brand. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the scenarios that is challenging for a lot of people is if they want to make a shift professionally, they often worry, is anyone going to take me seriously? You know, I've, I've invested so much time, so much effort in getting known as X and then I want to get into why, and you know, will anybody listen? Will you know? Will they? Uh, will they think that I'm I'm just a dilettante? Will they uh, believe? You know, would I have any credibility? Would they believe what I say? And it is especially hard with some transitions. And one of them, which I thought was was fairly good and emblematic, was you know, you you hear plenty of stories culturally about people who, you know, maybe they, they were a consultant, but all along they really wanted to be a poet. And so one day they decide, oh, okay, I'm going to be a poet now because they're fulfilling their dream. That is at least a societally accepted narrative where people get it. It's like, oh, well, it's been brewing in you all along. But the reverse what actually struck me as really interesting is kind of this man bites dog situation because there was a woman that I know and I profiled her in Reinventing You named Libby Wagner and she was a poet. She was a trained poet, you know, MFA and all. She was, uh, she taught in a university. She had written chap, you know, chap books of poetry that had been published. All of, all of the, the credentials. But she decided she wanted to do a career change and become a management consultant. 
And the you know this reverse shift is a lot harder because you know she, the narrative in her head, which I think was not irrational, was why would these business people listen to me? They're going to think, oh blah blah, she's a poet, you know, like like you know she might know about yeah she might know about Keats, but you know what does she know about my balance sheet? So anyway, you you have to prove yourself under those circumstances, and. Anyway, her answer for a long time, and I think a lot of people can probably relate to this, is she just decided not to tell anyone. She just decided to totally hide the fact that she was a poet, which is kind of tough because that's how she had spent like, you know, the first multiple decades of her career. But uh, but she basically kept it under her hat. Uh, but, you know, it, it meant that she was not really able to tap into what made her shine or special gifts that she had. But over time, she became more and more confident, and eventually she started sort of letting it slip, and people actually, to her surprise, began reacting favorably. And so over time, she got more and more confident about uh, coming out, so to speak, as a poet, and so she decided that she would lean into it. So she began hosting writing retreats, uh, or, or actually, you know, these these uh, sort of retreats, leadership retreats for her clients, where they would read literature together and then use it as a focal point for discussing uh, leadership theories and their their own business practices. And also, she renamed her newsletter the Boardroom Poet, so that uh, she, you know it became a part of her identity and uh, part of her strengths that she was leveraging. So let me ask you one more question about um, reinventing you. And you you frame for people the act of Googling yourself really in a really cool way. How would you talk to people about that? <laughs> well, I think I think. Uh, there's a certain percentage of people who have never, it never even occurred to them to Google themselves. Like, what is that? Why would you do that? Uh, there's another percentage of people that would think, wow, that sounds like the most narcissistic thing ever. Like, oh, God, like, who, do, who does that? Are you a Kardashian uh, trying to see how many hits you have? But I actually think that Googling yourself periodically, or even better, setting up a Google alert so that you are just, you know, you have a push notification whenever your name pops up on the internet is actually a very good idea, largely because it enables you to just to just stay on top of what's being said. Because if if something is out there, uh, number one, if it's a positive thing, well, it would be an awfully nice thing for you to thank the person or just be aware of it. If it is a negative or an incorrect thing, not a bad idea for you to be aware of it sooner rather than later so that you can correct it or take care of it um, rather than letting it fester and somehow uh, spread without your knowledge, so I, I think it, I would I would consider it good internet hygiene. <laughs> right, and then also you know what people see about you is a lot of times just going to affect your personal brand. Absolutely, I mean you know. Uh, until the 90s or so, we didn't have to worry about this. But I mean, now we do. I mean, you you know, you do this, I'm sure, and I do it. Everybody does, which is the minute you have a meeting with someone set up or you're connecting with someone, you're like, hmm, well, I want to know a little bit more about them. And so you Google them. I mean, it's just the it's just the thing that you do. And so it's almost irresponsible to ignore that and to somehow imagine that that doesn't exist or that that's not a thing that you should take into account. For the audience, I would say, if you haven't read Reinventing You, please go get it right away. It's one of my favorite books. And I think what's so wonderful about it is like, you know, we were talking about the the fact if you're a horse, be a horse. But where that connects to the story about the poet 
the boardroom poet is that you can be all kinds of a, different kinds of horses. You can be a striped horse. You can be a horse that helps other people be better horses. So we can all change and grow. But, you know, I think being authentic about your story is really what it comes down to. Yes, absolutely. So with the kind of work you do, what's the best thing about it and what's the worst thing about it? Because you're an author and a lecturer and, you know, so I guess you're traveling some, you're working by yourself. So what's the best thing and the worst thing about how you how you make a living right now? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I, I have always been sort of an autonomy junkie. I remember reading years ago, um, you know, I think it was it was the book Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Great book. And uh, it was. It was really interesting. And they talked about, you know, I mean, just at a really basic level, it is useful for us to all be aware of, like, what are the things that systematically have uh, been proven to make humans either happy or unhappy? And how do we, you know, how do we plan around it? And to your point, Steve, uh, one of the, the one of the things, like literally, like I think it's either the top one or the next to next to top one uh, that made people unhappy was being stuck in traffic. <laughs> and so, if we can eliminate that from our lives, I mean, nobody's gonna miss it. That's that's great. And uh, and and the thing that made people happy was a sense of autonomy. And so, uh, in terms of what I do, I do love that there's a lot of variety, there's a lot of autonomy. Um, you know, I, I have a busy schedule and I work a lot, but unlike certain, you know, certain people who like, I don't know, let's say you work at a law firm, you know, and, and you, you know, it's like, oh God, well, you know, my boss just dumped all this stuff on my desk and I have to cancel all my weekend plans because I suddenly have to do this. Nobody's going to do that to me. I mean, I, you know, I, you get to decide. Yeah, I get to, I get to decide. And so it, it often means that the volume is, is large but um, the timing is of my choosing. So I have the ability to prioritize the things that matter. So I, I appreciate that a lot for sure. The worst part is probably just that, um, you know, and, and, and this comes with the territory, so I'm happy to deal with it. But there, because I'm doing a lot of different things, there are a lot of people coming at me with stuff. And so I can almost never catch up really fully with my inbox because there's, you know, every everything you say yes to sort of engenders 10 emails about it. And so it's like, oh boy, there's there's a lot of people to whom I constantly owe things, you could say. I bet. that's a, It's a real challenge when you're working on your own or you're, you're at the you know, part where you're a decision maker. And as a fellow autonomy junkie, I get it. You know, it's like a, it's a great way to live. And also you have a little bit more pressure to, to really watch how you say yes and no to things. Totally. You know, that's one of the things. So what event would you say in your life has shaped you most as a person? That's a great question. Um, what event has shaped me the most? Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to answer it. I guess I'll take it hyper literally, um, which is uh, an event or a series of events that that has been important to me professionally is, and this is something I've written about in some of my books, there is a conference that I first learned about when I was, when I was like 13, uh, and it was called Renaissance Weekend. And it is an ideas conference that was most famous because when Bill Clinton was president, he would attend it. And so I remember hearing about it and, you know, I just being like, well, I want to go to that. Like, you know, why, why can't I go <laughs> I to that? You know, where the president's yeah. hanging out. That sounds like a great idea. And, uh, anyway, you know, I mean, my family was far from it. Like that was not their 
thing. They were not connected. I don't think it ever would have even occurred to them to want to, to go to or to want to go to such a thing. But I was very keen on it. And so I, uh, I basically didn't forget about it. And so uh, fast forward to around 2008, and I had started my business, but I was in my 20s, you know, and it's an invitation-only conference. But I was like, you know, I didn't know anybody who went. And uh, I was like, well, I'm going to invite myself. So, uh, so I, I uh, wrote them a letter, and I was just like, hi, I know you need to technically be invited, but uh, can I raise my hand here? And uh, graciously, to, to my surprise, they were like, okay, you can come. And so I was so nervous that they would somehow rescind it that I immediately signed up for four of them because like without having gone to any, because I was, I was at least convinced. I'm like, well, if they've taken all my money, they can't really say no. So, uh, anyway, I, I signed up for a bunch of them because I, I realized that it would be very important to, to invest in upgrading my network and meeting different types of people. And I think that that is, that that is almost never wrong, that it is important to uh, make sure that you're in the room with the right people. What a wonderful place to do it, dude. That is so cool how you, how you set a goal like that and then just kept after it and, and made it happen for yourself. I think that, is so, that says a lot about you. So you've got an awful lot going on. You do so many different things. What would you name this chapter of your life right now? Hmm. Um, above and beyond middle age. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would, uh, Good book title. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say that, you know, the way that I think about it is that I'm trying to sort of consolidate gains and, uh, and, and sort of rebalance the portfolio a little bit because I've, I've been able to, accomplish not all, but a lot of my professional goals. And I've also in particular, you know, I, I started in 2017. It's one of the books we haven't talked about as, as much yet, but this book, Entrepreneurial You, yeah, is a great about, book. thank you. It's about how to, you know, create multiple revenue streams in your business. And I, and in particular to, to turn up the dial on passive income, which was a sort of obsession of mine. And Anyway, uh, I realized that it would probably be necessary for a sort of long-term success to be able to do that. And as a result, um, I, I've been able to, to do more of that. I think it's given me a little bit more freedom and flexibility. And so now I'm, I'm trying to, I would say broadly, think through how to continue systematizing my business, making it more efficient, putting it, you know, more on autopilot, making it more evergreen and allowing it to buy myself time for other areas, uh, like health and like relationships that have perhaps gotten a little less attention. Yeah. Increase your autonomy even more. And that was something I was going to mention at the end. You have, uh, a lot of wonderful seminars and things that people can take and sign up for. So if you're not following Dory on LinkedIn or if you don't know about Dory and her books, you can also get training from Dory. And some of the trainings look absolutely amazing. So I've seen people that have graduated from some of your programs and post their diplomas. And, you know, you're one of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure to talk to. So oh, anyone, boy, that gets thank the, you. anyone that gets a chance to take a seminar from you should instantly sign up for it. That's what I think. Thank you, man. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, absolutely. So I have like two last questions for you and I will let you go because I know you have a busy day. What's something about your work that no one ever asks you that we, you wish people knew more, more about? Mm, something about my work. I would say, um, you know, I, I talk about it a, a little bit, but uh, a thing that 
that I always like to geek out on is hearing hearing different people's sort of uh, productivity strategies. I I I'm a little bit torn, you know, because. On, on one hand, I know that this, this sort of current societal wave is like, why are we doing so much? We need to give ourselves a break. And like, I believe in that. And also I'm still the person that I'm like, how can I do more? This, you know, <laughs> this sounds amazing. How do I fit it all in? You know? right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like at war with myself. So I, whenever there's like hacks or whatever, I'm always like, yes, tell me more. So I love to trade stories about that. That's right. Well, you're a wonderfully complex person. I like how you're struggling with those two things at once. Chill out and get more done at the same time. So last question, and thank you so much for your time here today. This has been a blast for me. If you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? Oh, all the way, all the way. Build an email list. That's the most important thing for anybody. That is such a great answer. That's, I've never gotten that one before, and I've given that advice so many times that it's just great. That's a great answer. So thank you so much for being here today. It was so much fun talking to you. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's so great to get to talk to you. I'll also just mention too that for, for folks who are, who are interested, we had spent a lot of time talking about reinventing you. And if folks are interested, I have a free reinventing you self-assessment with questions that you can use to reflect on your own life, your own uh, personal brand, your own reinvention if you're thinking of one. And they can get it at doryclark.com slash reinvent. Yeah, I took that assessment and it's really cool. So that's a great way to get to know Dory and her work is to go take that that reinventing you assessment. Not only is it fun, it, you get some really cool information out of it. So I, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm such a fan. So this was such a blast for me. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to do this. Thank you, Steve. Great talking with you. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.